0: You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12s. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks, along with Rob Rang. Free agency and the trade market are heating up. Tons to talk about with the calendar flipping to March. Let's get to it. Now for your lead story here on Locked On Seahawks. The biggest news story in the NFL today didn't happen in Seattle, but it could have some implications for the Seahawks in the next few weeks. Rob, it's hard to believe how quickly things change in the NFL. The Jaguars were almost a Super Bowl team just two years ago with a very young roster for the most part, and now, fast forward two years later, General Manager David Caldwell is in cell mode, is in cell mode, getting rid of any expensive veteran that he can.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the trade of AJ Bouye to the, the Denver Broncos, I think, shows that the Jacksonville basically is going through a little bit of a mini fire sale right now. Um, you know, and so it's going to be really interesting to see if, if perhaps that unique Ngakwe might be, perhaps be part of that deal. And I think that's why that this ties in so well, um, for, for the Seahawks or at least for Seahawks fans, um, is, is you have to believe that just knowing the way that, that John Schneider basically is going to look under every single rock and nook and cranny he can to try and add talent, um, um, uh, I'm sure that, that he likely did make a phone call. Um, you know, just kind of investigating what was going on with Booyah, just considering that that's an area of concern for Seattle. Um, and then again, with Ngakwe and the Jacksonville Jaguars do have a lot of talent, Corbin, or a lot of, cor- a lot of talent, Corbin. You're absolutely right. Um, and so I think that it is, um, you know, it's a, it's a big story, obviously, in Jacksonville and Denver, but it's a potential story in Seattle. And so I think it's, uh, absolutely the, the story that we should be talking about today.
0: Yeah, after seeing Boye go to the Broncos today for a fourth-round pick, I mean, you're trading away a guy just a couple years ago, had six interceptions in his first season with Jacksonville, the year they went to the AFC Championship game. And a couple years later, I mean, things just fell apart there. And you had players like Jalen Ramsey that forced their way out of town. There's other players like Ngakwe that have made it clear, I don't want to sign a long-term deal here. I'm kind of surprised David Caldwell at this point still has a job with all the upheaval here because this did look like a franchise that was destined to have a perennial playoff contender in Jacksonville after nearly getting the Super Bowl a couple years back and they've just never recovered after giving up a fourth quarter lead and allowing the Patriots to come back and win that game and now a lot of the players they've paid top dollar for are just chewing up huge chunks of their payroll and after trying to overhaul things last year with the same roster for the most part they bring in nick Foles. everything just did not work out so now they're back to the drawing board and like you said it's a fire sale now you got to wonder if the seahawks are going to be interested in shopping at this fire sale and one player that immediately jumps out to me that i've seen a lot of rumors about today and i'm not surprised here Defensive end Calais Campbell, and I'm going to make an argument here, he belongs in Hall of Fame discussion. He has been that good of a player since coming into the league back in 2008. He spent most of his career with Arizona. Seattle knows him very well, an NFC West nemesis that always killed them in head-to-head matchups. Last year's numbers, not quite as good as they've been. He's going to be 34 years old here soon. So he's a little older player, but he still had six and a half sacks, nearly 20 quarterback hits last year. Look at his career as a whole: 201 quarterback hits and 88 sacks at 300 plus pounds. And he hasn't had a year with 10 tackles for a loss or fewer since 2009. So this guy's consistently been one of the best defensive linemen, stuffing the run and getting after the quarterback over the past. 10, 11, 12 years, and he's been durable too. He's played in 16 regular season games, five straight years and 10 times in his NFL career. He's certainly a guy the Seahawks have had interest in in the past
1: yeah he fits in so well what seattle does and he talked about his uh his durability his consistency um you know but just the, the the size and physicality at the point of attack i mean this is the kind of guy that that every team is looking for um i think the only reason that he would not be a hall of fame player because i absolutely agree with you he's that caliber of a player is just the fact that that he played all those years the arizona cardinals when they weren't a very good team and then jacksonville of course they had a, a taste of success but as you Kind of documented there that you know things are things are going downhill fast, and you uh, in Jacksonville, and so to me that would be the only only reason that he does not get that type of attention because this is a terrific football player. Of course, Seattle fans will remember him so well in Arizona. Um, you know, you might remember just this past season um, when, when Seattle went up against Cincinnati in that very first week of the season, and, and Pete Carroll kind of talked about Carlos Dunlap and what a monster he is. To me, Carlos Dunlap is a very good player. Player who I don't believe is quite as good as Calais Campbell, um, and, and so I, I think that we're talking about very similar, long arm, very strong, very powerful, and, and yet shockingly quick um, as far as pass rushers as well. So um, while I think that there's going to be a lot of people are going to talk about Ngakwe, um, you know, and there's going to be some fantasy football enthusiasts out there going to mention names like Leonard Fournette and guys like that. But yeah, I think Campbell. Um, to be, if, if Seattle is willing to roll the dice, he only has one more year on his contract, and he's due a lot of money. Um, but at the same time, if Seattle is in kind of that win now mode, and they're unable to retain a Jadavion Clowney, um, you know, or, or find somebody of similar talent, then yeah, I think that the Campbell might be somebody that, that, that the Seahawks would be wise to be making all the phone calls they possibly can about.
0: And I think you might be able to pry him out of Jacksonville for a third round pick and maybe even a fourth, because he only has one year left on his deal. He's an aging player, still a very productive player at that. I think the one big issue here, if Seattle doesn't re-sign Clowney, then obviously there's they have cap flexibility, but Campbell has a seventeen and a half million dollar cap hit in twenty twenty. If I was trying to orchestrate a deal. I would try to set it up that you're working with a restructure or adding another year in his deal to try to lower that cap hit, and you know that he would have interest playing in Seattle for a contender at this stage of his career. So I can't say it's impossible that's going to happen, but that cap hit, to me, is the most prohibitive thing from stopping anybody, including the Seahawks, from making a trade to acquire a very good player in Calais Campbell. And then, of course, there's the whole topic with Yannick Ngakwe, who... A lot of fans were saying the Seahawks should sign him in free agency. He is not going to hit free agency. All reports indicating that Jaguars are going to franchise tag him and I would think this is setting up for a trade because he's made it clear he doesn't want to sign a long term contract with Jacksonville. I would not be surprised if he pulls a Jadavian Clowney and refuses to sign his tender unless he's getting traded to a team he wants to go to and he has an extension that's part of that deal. Kind of like what Seattle ended up doing with Frank Clark last season. Rob, this guy had 37 and a half sacks 85 quarterback hits his first four NFL seasons and he's just 24 years old I think the Seahawks have to at least inquire there once he signs his franchise tag or has it placed on him at least they need to inquire about his availability because even if you have to give up a first rounder because of his age the fact that he should be just coming into his prime and he's already been an elite pass rusher off the edge I think you have to consider shopping your first round pick for a guy like that
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think Ngakwe is the best pass rusher that Seattle has any remote chance of, of acquiring, in my opinion. And that, that includes the draft. That includes all the the, the free agents. That includes Jadavion Clowney. In terms of just pass rusher, um, as you just talked about, I mean, his statistics, his age, um, his speed off the edge. The fact that he is a clean schematic fit is that Leo defensive end. Now, that said. He is not the run defender, and we know that Seattle's run defense last year was abysmal. You look at the, the the division in which they play, you have to be able to stop the run if you are going to be able to compete with the 49ers and, and the Rams to a lesser extent, and we'll see about what Arizona's doing. But at the same time, I just don't think that, that Seattle will go all in and Ngakwe in, in any type of a trade unless they are able to uh, also kind of supplement their defensive line to make it a little bit tougher against the run, and then you can get a guy like that. So if you're not going to go with Ngakwe, then maybe one of those speedy pass rushers like a Vic Beasley or a Bruce Irvin might be kind of a consolation prize that you can get for a lot less dollars. But for right now, yeah, I don't think that John Schneider is calling to investigate. I think that he's calling probably daily just to keep pestering Jacksonville to see if he might be able to steal away a player like Ngakwe
0: and see if you can get him for the price that you want. We know John Schneider is a master negotiator, so you can guarantee that there's at least been some inquiring there on what it will take to get in Ngakwe. And those type of discussions, they go on behind closed doors of the Combine. So I'm sure there were plenty of fun stuff going on in Indianapolis last week for all teams exploring those trade avenues. When we come back from the break, something we're going to be doing the next several weeks leading up to the start of free agency on March 18th, we're going to revisit some of the best... The worst free agent signings that the Seahawks have made in their franchise history. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. This is Corbin Smith along with Rob Rang. Coming up in the third quarter, continuing off yesterday's show, we're going to look at 10 defensive players from the Combine that took advantage of their opportunity working out in front of scouts and executives from NFL teams. Maybe players that have the right traits and physical skill sets to match with the Seahawks schematically. We're going to look at some players that bolstered their stock. All right, let's talk free agency here, Rob. Free agency is coming up on March 18th. March 16th is the day that legal tampering is allowed, although I'm pretty sure there's some illegal tampering going on for all 32 NFL teams, and there has been for several weeks. But that's the date that they're allowed to start discussing contracts. We're going to look at some of the worst and some of the best free agent signings that the Seahawks have made in their franchise history. Let's start off on the bright side. I like being positive first here. And we're going to be fairly recent with our first pick for best free agent signings. And I think we could maybe look at this as a pair deal because the Seahawks signed two edge rushers for a pretty good price in 2013. And that would be when they signed Cliff Averill as well as Michael Bennett to two-year contracts.
1: Yeah, the Cliff Averill deal in particular, two-year deal worth $13 million. And what I remember about that, Corbin, is um, you know, I've been talking with, with guys in, in that front office for years now and, and just the excitement they felt because both Averill and Bennett, uh, at least I was told, that they turned down bigger contract offers with other teams to sign with Seattle because they just could see that there was something kind of brewing here. Um, and, and so some of the executives I kind of spoke to, um, they, they just said, hey, how exciting is that, that that players are actually taking less money To come to Seattle And that of course was so opposite Of of how things were for so long That you basically had to give extra money You had to do some of these extra things Like fly people in on private helicopters And all those kind of things Just to try to wow them To convince them to move all the way over here Into darn near Alaska um, You know in in Seattle And so that was It felt like a turning point um, Just in, in terms of kind of the NFL landscape And how others were viewing the season Seahawks, and obviously Cliff Able being very successful statistically, helping Seattle win their first championship, uh, and obviously wound up being one of the best free agent signs in Seahawks history.
0: Yeah, he had eight sacks his first year with the team in 2013, 19 quarterback hits, and I think this was his entire career in Seattle. He was one of the best playoff performers that they had on either side of the football. I still believe if he does not get a concussion at the end of the Super Bowl against the Patriots he missed most of the second half. If he plays the rest of that second half We don't have to worry about that awful interception that happened at the end of the game by Russell Wilson. The Seahawks win convincingly in that game. Everything changed when he was no longer on the field because the first half, Tom Brady, he was just after him every play it felt like. And then once he was out of the game, Brady was able to get comfortable in the pocket. He started throwing those crossing routes and hitting them with the short to intermediate stuff, and the Seahawks had no answer for that. And not having Jeremy Lane out there was big, too, because they didn't have a backup slot corner. But the Averill injury was clearly the biggest one. And you look at just his career as a whole in Seattle. It's unfortunate that it ended the way that it did with the neck injury, but his last full season... They had given him a big contract by that point that he had earned, 11 eleven and a half sacked season in 2016. So he rewarded the Seahawks for giving him that big contract. So he and Bennett—that was quite the package bargain deal. And and really, it was one of the big turning points that allowed this team to capture a title and almost win back-to-back championships.
1: No, you're exactly right. And um, you know I, your your memory is so sharp on on you know, the Super Bowl loss, the Patriots. I mean, again, I, I think that you're right. Um, The injury to Averill, the injury to Jeremy Lane were were critical um, in in Seattle, uh, essentially falling apart at the end of that game. But for good reason, um, certainly Tom Brady and the Patriots deserve a heck of a lot of credit for what they did. But at the same time, uh, you know, those two injuries were absolutely critical um, to to taking away Seattle's two most important defenders in a lot of ways against the type of offense that New England has, their best pass rusher and their best nickel corner. Um, and, And so, yeah, I think that's a, it's an excellent point. Um, and, and then one more thing real quick with, with Cliff Averill is that, you know, to me, he, he was a guy that um, was a, almost a little bit before his time. I think that if he had been drafted now, if he'd be in this draft, he'd be a first-round pick. Um, you know, because the you know, in when he was drafted out of Purdue all those years ago, um, you know, pass rushing pass rushers were important, but he was considered small. And now you're seeing these guys, it's typical to be in that six three, six four, two hundred and forty five to two hundred and fifty five kind of pounds. Um, and and that was one of the biggest knocks that people had on him, um, was that he just wasn't big enough. But again, in today's era, I think that he'd be ideal and obviously he was very successful in his own era just a couple of years ago.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. If he was picked now, he's probably a top 10, top 15 pick. If you look at the kind of edge rushers that teams are prioritizing now, they love those faster guys. that can really pin their ears back. And he was always kind of underrated as a run defender too. I think as an all-around player at that Leo spot, it was an excellent fit. And really, you look back at what happened to Chris Clemens because he was playing the Leo spot. Clemens got hurt in the playoffs in 2012 on that awful Washington grass, which really isn't grass and he wasn't the same player when he came back the next year. He was getting to be an older player. That move to sign Averill was just huge, considering that Clemens was just not the same player. Being able to put him into the lineup at that Leo spot was a major addition, and they they were able to bring him in at a bargain, and eventually they rewarded him as they should have by giving him a big contract. Now, let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Averill was an outstanding free agent signing. You got great bang for your buck. Then, in March 2009, I always call this the Jim Morris season, and usually any storyline that comes out of that season is anything but positive, but in March 2009, the Seahawks decided it was a good idea to pay a 32-year-old TJ Houshmandzada a five-year, $40 million deal with $15 million guaranteed, and... At I, I, the time, I'll admit, I, I was somewhat skeptical about the length of the deal, but I thought this guy still had a lot of good football left in him, and Seattle really needed help at the receiving position, so I thought, you might be able to get a few years out of this deal, and then when the guaranteed money's gone, you can move on from him, but unfortunately, Rob, uh, it didn't work out that way.
1: No, it certainly did not. Uh, you know, Hush just w- w- was not nearly as productive, nearly as, uh, you know, I mean, he had good, he had decent numbers in terms of catches, in terms of yards and all that. I mean, it was decent. It's just that when you give somebody that type of a contract, you're expecting a heck of a lot more than just decent. Uh, you know, I mean, 79 receptions, 911 yards, uh, you know, but he wasn't the most reliable route. Um, it, it, you know, for a guy that had his size and his hops, um, uh, you know, then you you expected him to kind of be able to post up, play above the rim, and and really be that red zone threat that Seattle has struggled with for for years now. Um, to be able to find some guy like that, obviously, um, you know, very high expectations with DK Metcalf and uh, you know, and Greg Olson now coming into Seattle. I mean, they might be able to address that, but that certainly was not the case back then. Uh, and again, kind of like Cliff favor, I kind of go back to the. the the way back machine. I, mean, I remember scouting TJ when he was at Oregon State right alongside Chad Johnson, Ocho Cinco before they both wound up going to Cincinnati Bengals. And, you know, you could see that TJ was a talented player um, and that and that was one of the reasons I was excited is that he was coming back to the Pacific Northwest. As I mentioned, he played his college ball um, at Oregon State, but he just it just never looked right, never felt right. He never really played like a Seahawk. We've had so many guys over the years, even at the wide receiver position, who have just kind of, I think, won over the fan base with their grit. I didn't see grit from T.J. Hushmanzada, and that's one of the reasons why I absolutely agree that he is one of the worst free agent signs in this franchise's history.
0: Yeah, he was released after just one season. You mentioned the numbers on today's Seahawks. If somebody goes 79 receptions, 911 yards, that's really, really good production. But he had a sub-60% catch rate. That season And things that just jumped out to me, and it was apparent early. And you saw this. It was widespread on that team. I think a lot of it came down from the coaching staff. That that team just did not respect Jim Mora on the sideline. They didn't respect his staff. And so you got a subpar effort. And this is something that you saw glimpses of in Cincinnati. But usually, T.J. Hushmanzada played hard, and he ran good routes. Well, there were questions about his effort. There were questions about his route running. There were plays where Matt Hasselbeck was trying to get the football to him and he would just slow down mid-route or completely stop and it led to some really bad interceptions that shouldn't have happened and by middle of the season people were rioting in Seattle they were like we paid this guy all this money and he's had a couple big games that have inflated his statistics but overall he's been a huge disappointment and then once Pete Carroll came in one of the first moves the Seahawks made was releasing him it just wasn't a good fit for what they were going to be doing offensively they didn't want to pay that kind of money for a player that was now going to be 33 years old he ended up playing two more years in the league never was the same player that was a pro bowler with the Bengals.
1: No, he certainly was not, and it's, if you look at his his time in Cincinnati, and that's one of the reasons why I mentioned um, w- w- with Chad Johnson is that you know that was the thing. TJ was kind of the uh, you know he was the the Robin to Chad Johnson being Batman. I mean, he was kind of the sidekick, and, and that's why I was so stunned when Seattle gave him the big contract that they did. You know, it, it was exciting. I mean, certainly you, you get excited when when you when you see any you you know a team that is willing to roll the dice and. and bringing a player that that has had some production and um you know just considering how productive that he had been over the last couple of years in cincinnati prior to seattle sign him i mean he was spectacular in 2007 I mean, he had 12 touchdowns um you know and uh, you know 100 career high 112 passes uh receptions um and 1143 yards but think about that 112 passes For 1,143 yards, that's only averaging 10 yards a a reception. I mean, that's the kind of guy that he was. He was a possession receiver and a complementary possession receiver at that. Um, and, and so I just always thought that you're going to dedicate this amount of dollars to a guy that doesn't have the straight line speed to be able to run away from people. You know who you have at the quarterback position and at Hasselbeck, who is a good quarterback. Don't get me wrong. But he didn't have a howitzer. His game was never throwing the ball deep. He, he needed receivers to be able to make some plays for him, help him out, because he was very accurate, very smart. But again, he didn't have that great arm. And I just thought that T.J. Ushpenzada was a was a surprising choice to to be that, that guy that they thought was going to be kind of the uh, you know, the answer at the receiver position.
0: Coming up next Tuesday, we'll take a look at another great offseason free agent signing and another one that falls in the Zada category that didn't necessarily work out. We'll be doing that all the way up to the start of free agency on March 18th. Coming up in the third quarter, the Combine's in the books. Yesterday we kickstarted this with the offensive side of the ball looking at players that bolstered their stock in Indianapolis. We're going to swing to the defensive side looking at some prospects who really helped themselves make some money come draft time and maybe good fits for the seattle seahawks in april don't go away you're listening to the locked on seahawks podcast part of the locked on podcast network your team every day Welcome back. Glad to have you joining us here on the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, along with Rob Rang. The Combine wrapped up on Sunday. As usual, plenty of rapid reactions out there about how players performed. I call it the overreaction week after the Combine because, I mean, these guys that are running around, there's importance to it, but... It doesn't tell you directly, there's not a direct correlation between how fast you run to the combine, your drill work, and being a good NFL player. That being said, it still makes and breaks uh, the draft situation for a number of players. So Rob, let's look at some under-the-radar defensive guys who may fit into what Seattle's looking for that improved their stock last week in Indianapolis. Let's start at defensive end, the pass rushers, Seattle's biggest need.
1: Oh, yeah, it is Seattle's biggest need. And, and this guy that I'm going to start off with is not necessarily under the radar. I mean, considering that he played his college ball at, at Florida and uh, he has basically been kind of flashing um, elite athleticism throughout his entire career. But at the same time, he is a little bit off the radar because Jabari Zuniga uh, is a guy who struggled with durability throughout his career. And that's why he is likely to be available um, perhaps to Seattle in the late portion of the second round, even though you you see Flash is a first-round talent. He's a guy who I think uh, reminds me a lot of Everson Griffin when he was coming out of USC um, all those years ago. And we've talked a lot about the real Everson Griffin and what a fit that he might be if Seattle was able to pry him away from the Minnesota Vikings. But... Zuniga is a, is a young player, 6'3, 264 pounds, and had a terrific showing at the combine. Um, when healthy, that's what he's done, is it, he's been a difference maker. 4.64 seconds in the 40 yard dash, among the fastest of all the defensive linemen tested, 29 repetitions in the bench press, a 33 inch vertical. And I mentioned the vertical and the bench press specifically because that's the explosiveness. Um, and, and that's of course so critical at the, you know, in, along the line of scrimmage. And so he he is a player who, again, you, you're going to see some flashes. I think that if Seattle was able to get him, then he would be able to help their pass rush. The question you have is the fact that he did struggle with injuries basically throughout his career. missed several games in 2017 and this past season, Corbin. I mean, he basically missed the second half of the year with a high ankle sprain that some questioned if maybe he should not have been able to come back from a little bit earlier. So that's one of the things that makes the combine so critical for him. Is you know, he has the athletic ability. Was he able to convince people of his toughness and his commitment during the interview process as well.
0: So you get a prospect from one of the blue bloods of college football. I'm going to look at one of the the mid-level guys that always wins. We talked about one of their tackle prospects yesterday. I'm going back to Boise State at edge rusher here. And that would be Curtis Weaver, a player that I have seen draft grades late first all the way to mid third. He's perplexing in terms of draft grades because, you know, some guys view him as a top edge rushing prospect. And there's others that just don't know if his skill set translates to the NFL level. But I look at the size. He's two. Pounds. So he's got the build to be able to play defensive end as a 4 3 guy. 34 and a half sacks the last three years for the Broncos, so he knows how to get after the quarterback in a number of different ways. He's got some developed counter moves, and I thought his athletic skills at the combine. he didn't run the 40. A lot of these edge rushers did not, but he posted a seven-second seven flat three-cone time, which I think is pretty darn impressive for a 4-3 defensive end, and he had a really good short shuttle time as well. This guy's a pretty explosive athlete. My biggest concern with Weaver moving into the NFL, though, playing that 4-3, three spot I thought he was pretty vulnerable against the run mostly from a technique standpoint if the right defensive line coach gets a hold of him I think the mentality there for him to be a good run defender but it's an area that he's going to need to be coached up but if Seattle's looking for somebody in the second round maybe even the third depending where he ends up falling I think he's a second round guy but if they can get him with one of those two picks in the second round he can get after the quarterback right away in Seattle, and you can develop those other skills. Looking at the defensive tackle position now, swinging to the interior, you mentioned Clowney might be gone. There's a chance Jaron Reed will be gone as well, and the Seahawks will have to try to find most likely a new 3 tech that can play that one-gap responsibility in Seattle's scheme.
1: Yeah, they will, and so that fortunately there are some guys that play that position um, that that are going to be available, and Seattle may be in in very good position to be able to to take advantage of that. One of the players that that I'm a big fan of um, is, is Justin matabuque uh, from from Texas A and M. Now, you know, yesterday I probably angered some of our very loyal listeners, and thank you by the way, listeners, but um, because I I kind of begged out of a question about Yutur Gross Matos and the idea should he be Seattle's primary pick and I and I said that you know entering this process that I gave him a, a late first to second round grade well Matabuke is a guy that I gave a first round grade entering the season he was a little inconsistent but at the same time as you talked about Corbin I mean Seattle's going to need one of those three techniques those interior guys who have the quickness um, and the burst to be able to provide some passers from the interior especially when you're talking about um, again this division and some of the uh, you know the it's going to be all about the running game. You have to be able to get some pressure from the interior because the quarterbacks generally, especially in the Rams and Arizona, are going to get the ball out so damn quick. And that's what Matic Buki's game is. It's just his burst. Um, 4.83 seconds in the 40-yard dash certainly demonstrates that for a 300-pound guy or 293 pounds. And then 31-inch, uh, or excuse me, 31 in the bench press. So not only does he have terrific quickness, but he also has the power to hold up the point of attack as well.
0: I'm going to go with a little later round prospect in McTelvin Ajim from Arkansas. He's right in that weight threshold to Seahawks. Like you and I talked about this last week, they've actually drafted most of the time when they've gone defensive line in the interior, they have drafted three tech guys that can play at one gap that can penetrate that are in that 290 to 305 pound range. So... Ajim is a little bit bigger, maybe, than they look for at 309, but it's it's close enough. I think they'll look at him. And the fact he ran a sub five second 40 yard dash, had 27 bench press reps, so he was almost as explosive in that category as Matabuke. 14.5 sacks in college. This is a player that could be able to come in potentially and play right away for you, at least as a situational rusher in the interior and develop into a rotational piece for you that I could see available in the fourth or fifth round. You could get pretty good day three value with this particular player. I don't know what he's going to look like at Arkansas's Pro Day as far as the three cone and short shuttle drills go. That'll be important to determining who picks him, where he ends up going. He only did two drills at the combine but the two that he competed in and with his weight I think he matches up well with what the Seahawks are wanting to do in the interior defensive line especially at that three tech position now swinging to linebacker obviously the Seahawks picked a couple guys of the position last year they brought in Cody Barton and Ben Burke-Curvin they've got most of their starters coming back from this past season. The only guy that's kind of up in the air is Michael Kendricks. We don't know what's going to happen with him coming off a torn ACL. He's a free agent. But most of that group has been kept intact. That being said, K.J. Wright isn't getting any younger. Bobby Wagner's not getting any younger. So if there's a position they could surprise and draft at some point in April, it might be the linebacker position.
1: It might. It might. Um, you know, I, as you just talked about, I mean, Bobby Wagner and KG Wright, as good as they are, they're obviously aging. Um, you know, you don't know what's going to happen with Michael Kendricks. Um, you know, I, I was very impressed with uh, what you saw from young Cody Barton and, and certainly uh, Ben Burkirvan and, and you know, his limited opportunities as a special teams player. I mean, he was the special teams demon that we thought that he would be. At the same time, both those players need to certainly get bigger and stronger if they are going to be able to contribute as, as full-time starters in the future. So I, I think that there is a possibility that, that, that Seattle, um, looks to address that position in this draft class. And, you know, one guy who just screams, see like every time I watched him, he reminded me so much of KG, right? Just with his, his positional versatility, he played inside linebacker, he played outside. They asked him to slide down and, and, and rush the passer at times. That's Malik Harrison from Ohio state, six three, two hundred and forty seven 247 pounds. So just a couple of pounds lighter than some of those defensive ends that we talked about. So that can be the, the pass rush Avenue. Um, 4.66 seconds in the 40-yard dash at 247 pounds. So one of the things that I've seen about Harrison and I've always really appreciated about KG Wright is that for a big man with long arms, he did a really nice job in coverage and just his awareness. Harrison is not as instinctive as KG Wright is, but he has a similar size and athletic ability, and he was at the fastest among all the linebackers. Again, 247 pounds, the fastest in the three-cone. And I love the three-cone it, it because It demonstrates the change of direction. And so that really is a great reflection of of Malik Harrison's athletic ability. So Malik the Freak from Ohio State, I think, could be somebody that Seattle is kind of considering in the middle rounds.
0: Harrison was a player that I had on my short list for this segment. I'm going to go with a player that a lot of our listeners probably have not heard of. If you watch a ton of Pac-12 football, you may have heard of him. But Davion Taylor out of Colorado. This is quite the story because of his family's religion, he couldn't play football games on Friday or Saturday, so he only played in one game in high school. He practiced. Can you imagine that? Only being able to participate in practice. You can't actually play in the games, but he went the Juco route after that. His parents allowed him to you know, pick, you know, you can do what you want to do now because of your age. So he was able to play in games at the college level after two years of playing Juco ball, ends up at Colorado. He started a lot of games for the Buffaloes the last two seasons. He's a little undersized, six foot, 228 pounds, but this guy was an all state champion in a couple different events in track. He's an explosive athlete and for not having much much football experience at least from a game perspective he made a lot of tackles. The ability to get into the backfield was evident. Has some untapped potential, uh, you know, being a guy that can play that Sam backer position, maybe pin his ears back off the edge because of that track speed that he brings to the table. He had an explosive combine performance, finishing the top couple players at the linebacker position in the forty, in the vertical, in broad jump, and did well in all the other drills. So this guy's an athletic freak because of his rawness, his inexperience. He's probably a late day three pick, but I could see him being a player the Seahawks are very intrigued by. Let's go to the secondary here real quick, Rob. We've got time to talk about one player at the cornerback or the safety position. Who is one player this past week that jumped out to you in the secondary as a potential Seahawk?
1: Well, I'll jump into the safety position then. Kyle Duger uh, is a guy. I mean, from Lenore Ryan, who is a former corner who who played safety, um, and then went to the Senior Bowl. was absolutely terrific there. Went to the the combine. was absolutely terrific there. Uh, now, Seattle has not had much of a past in, in drafting small school players with Schneider and, and Pete Carroll, but this kid is a different level. 6'1", 217 pounds, four point four nine seconds in the. 40 yard dash, a 42 inch vertical. I mean, those are numbers that are very comparable to what Shaquille Griffin did and what Trey Flowers did. Obviously, also another former safety who made that transition to corner. I talked to Kyle Dugger at the Senior Bowl specifically about if teams had asked him about moving back to corner, and he kind of gave me the you know a smile and just said no. That most most people have talked to him about just remaining in safety, but that's because he's a dominant safety. Um, you know, at that level, he also was a terrific kick returner. Um, and so, again, because of the positional versatility, the size, the speed, everything about him, I think Scream Seahawks, and if he is still available in the mid-rounds, I think this guy is a second-round pick all day long, but if he is available in the mid-rounds, then I think he might be one of those players that Seattle may have to eschew other needs and go for a guy like this just because, again, every, all the boxes that he can check.
0: I think he's a solid second round pick and I would not be surprised actually if a team at the very end of the first round took a flyer on him. That was the buzz coming out of Indianapolis with the numbers that he put up and coming from a small school that you don't see that happen very often but there have been a few instances recently where small school prospects have climbed into the first round early second. This kid's got the goods with the athletic ability the size, playmaking skills uh, to potentially be another player that falls in line there. I'm going to say the safety position too and main reason. I'm going to talk about this player is because I'm not going to say he's the next Cam Chancellor because that's never a fair assessment for anybody. But if you're looking for a guy that has similar athletic ability, in fact, I would say he's a better athlete than Cam Chancellor was, at least from the uh, combine drills, coming out of Clemson, Tanner foot two, two 228 pounds, going into the pre-draft process, and, and I know you feel this way too. A lot of people thought he's probably an outside linebacker at the NFL level. All he does is go out and run a 4-4-2 40-yard dash. Blazing speed. The second fastest among safeties in this combine. And you can see that speed. The more film I watched this weekend, because I was curious, you could actually see that that speed on film from this kid. He had seven interceptions at Clemson, too. So he's got decent ball skills. He's a hard hitter, physical with that size. I think whoever drafts this kid is going to use him like Seattle used, Camp Chancellor. He's going to spend a lot of time roaming up in the box and he's going to be laying hits on people. He's going to be like having an extra linebacker back there that also has enough ball skills occasionally to drop back at safety. A lot of positional versatility with this player and a lot of buzz was fourth or fifth round. I could see him sneaking potentially into day 2 at the latest he's probably a fourth round pick given his pedigree playing for the Tigers. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at CorbinSmithNFL. You can follow Rob at RobRang. If you'd like to be a featured sponsor for our podcast, you can contact me, LockedSeahawks, at gmail.com. You can subscribe to our show on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, whatever your preferred podcast platform is, by going to our website, LockedOnSeahawks.com. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we're going to discuss some potential cap casualty candidates for the Seahawks, the latest on Jadavian Clowney's market, and much more. Hope you'll be listening in. Go Hawks!